verse exposition of the book. We're in 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, and the sermon text is verses 12 through 14. However, I'll read verses 12 through 20, as I believe that is the section here, the, uh, the context. But we'll just cover verses 12 through 14 in the sermon, but I'll read verses 12 to 20. So First John chapter 2, starting in verse 12, I'll read through verse 20. This is God's word. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. That sounds the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the truths in these passages that you communicate to us. We thank you for salvation on the basis of Christ, for his name's sake. We thank you for the full, free forgiveness of our sins. And we thank you for sanctifying us. We thank you for sanctification as you mature us by your grace. And we pray that through this evening and through every day of our lives as we seek you, that we will grow more and more. And our spiritual maturity. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Most of you all know who know me and my family is that my wife Hannah and I have two children, right? Josiah, who's three, and Evangeline, who is one. And uh, recently, our son Josiah, again, who's three, was at my parents' house and they were reading the Bible together. And my dad read in the Bible a reference to Moses. And he asked Josiah, well, do you know who Moses is? And Josiah said, yeah, the Ten Commandments. My dad said, that's right. Moses gave us the Ten Commandments. And Josiah looked at him and he said, no, Papab, God gave us the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and my dad laughed, I'm arguing theology with a three-year-old, you know. <laughs> and this makes me think of how quickly, kind of the, the parent cliche, how quickly they're growing up, right? How quickly the kids are, are growing up. And it makes me think of how important it is for you know, our kids, for all of us, to grow up into maturity. That we need to instruct our children not to be boys, but to grow up to be men. Now, of course, over time, you know, he'll get taller, he'll get stronger, and he'll physically look like a man. Right? That's going to happen to him. 
But that's not what I mean. I mean that when he is physically a man, that he'll no longer think and act like a little boy. That he'll grow up into maturity spiritually, not just physically. And that's something that this text and many others calls us to do, that God calls us to grow up into maturity, spiritually speaking. We're not supposed to be children forever. We're supposed to grow up and become mature. In the book of Hebrews, in the fifth chapter, the author of Hebrews actually rebukes the audience for that very thing. He says to them in chapter 5 of Hebrews 12 and uh, and 13, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. He's saying, y'all, y'all ought to be mature by now enough that you could teach, but instead you're repeating the ABCs of Christian doctrine. Shouldn't be the case. So growing in spiritual maturity is not an option. It's expected from God. We need to grow up. Spiritually, And this text here in, in 1 John 12 to 14 gives us three stages of spiritual maturity that we'll see as we go through this evening. Fathers, young men, and children. And each of us should be in these stages in their proper time. Okay, So I think the text is outlined like this as we'll go through and see. He addresses first all the Christians in the audience regardless of spiritual maturity. That, those are the people he calls little children in verse 12. And then he addresses three stages. Fathers, that's level three. That's the highest level of maturity. Young men, that's level two, the second highest level of maturity. And then children, that's the new convert, the baby Christian. Okay? So as we go through the text, we'll, we'll lay this out and, and try to make it as clear as possible as uh, John makes these distinctions for us. If you look at verse 12 then, it says this, I'm writing to you little children... Because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, right off the bat, we could already get confused, right? Who's he really addressing here? Um, The phrase little children, if you're familiar with 1 John, and if you remember the beginning of chapter 2, he already used that phrase, little children, and he'll use it throughout the book. He uses it actually seven times in the book of 1 John, and he actually uses it once in the Gospel of John as well. That's the only places it's used in the New Testament. This word technia. In Greek, you translated little children in the New American Standard, for example. It might be different in other translations. He uses that, for example, in the beginning of chapter 2, the first verse. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's addressing everybody in the audience. 1 John 3, 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. That's everybody in the audience. Actually, the very last verse of the book, 1 John 5, 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Okay. That little children, technia in Greek, refers to everybody in the audience. Okay? And this is where Greek is important and something that you probably won't notice in your English translations is that when you see the word children in verse 13, where he says, I've written to you children because you know the father. That's the last phrase of verse 13. It's a different Greek word. It's not technia, translated little children, referring to everybody. It's paideia referring to, in this case, new converts. And in fact, that word, paideia, is only used twice in the book of 1 John. It's used in verse 13 and also in verse 18 of chapter 2, which says, children, it is the last hour, and so on. So John uses two words for children. When he's referring to everybody in the audience, translated little children in the New American Standard or the ESV as well, it's technia, 
But when he's referring to new converts, young Christians in maturity, it's paideia, which is used only twice, and both here in chapter 2. So as we go, I'll try to remind you of that distinction, because I think it's important for us to see that. Of course, the ones who originally got this letter would have seen that plainly in Greek, but we don't see it as clearly in English because they're translated very similarly. Technia is translated little children, paideia is just children in the New American Standard in the ESV, for example. All right, so in verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Again, this is technia. This is everybody in the audience. The little children is everybody, just like he uses it elsewhere in the book, little children. Okay, so what's this section about? This is kind of an interesting section of 1 John 12 to 14. Um, we've already had in the book a lot of serious tests to see whether or not you're saved. Right? That's been the, 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 um, the topic of almost every sermon we've had in this series so far is how do you know if you're saved? And he's given us a bunch of different tests. And here we have in this section really a pause, a break, where he's reassuring the audience there. And as we'll see why, I think you probably know why yourself, because those tests can be very serious and, and uh, concerning to true Christians, right? We can, we can wonder, am I even really saved when you actually are? So he gives a timeout. He says, okay, let's, let's talk about where you are. Let's talk about the promises of God. Let's talk about these things. So I'll remind you, the, the book of 1 John is dealing with, in a big way, the Gnostic false teachers that had infiltrated the church. They had gone in, they had taught uh, false doctrine, and then they actually had left uh, the church. And we see, we'll see that later on in this chapter, in chapter 2, very plainly. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, he says, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And then also in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, They went out from us. But they were not really of us, for if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it'd be shown that they were not of us. Those are both referring to the deceivers, the false teachers, the Gnostic uh, heretics that had infiltrated the church. So these are the people that John had made the statement about who claim to know God, yet walk in darkness. That was the first test. They claim to know God, yet they deny that they have any sin. That was the second test. They claim to know God, but they don't keep his commandments. That was the third and they claim to know God, but they don't love the brothers. So those were the tests that we saw. Those, those, those tests were directed primarily at those false teachers and those who would have gone out of the church with them. Yet really, those tests apply to anybody. Anybody to whom uh, they fit. If the shoe fits, wear it type of thing. If, if you are somebody who doesn't pass those tests, that those, those evidences of being saved aren't in your life, he's saying then it applies to you too. You need to test yourself. You need to see whether or not you really are saved. So they're sober words. They're, they're concerning words. They should be. We should look at them and have a very serious, uh, serious mindedness about it. If you claim to know God but don't bear those fruits, then you should recognize that you're not saved if you don't bear those fruits at all. Yet, John wants the recipients of the letter to know something, that he is not saying that they're all fake Christians. He's not saying, I know you all are all false converts. So they might be concerned, and he wants to give them some reassurance. He wants them to say, listen, I, I have seen in your lives evidence that you are really saved. I have confidence that you really do know the Lord. So he gives those serious tests, but he doesn't want, to think, he doesn't want them to think that they're all not saved. Because, you know, true Christians will look at those tests, and they're going to feel, well, I failed those things. I don't feel like I'm always walking in the light. I don't always feel like I, sometimes I'm self-righteous and not confessing my sins as I ought to. 
Or I'm not always walking in the commandments. I'm not always loving the brothers. Right? But he's saying the, the true Christian, of course, doesn't keep those things perfectly, which is why John says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But the true Christian recognizes his failures and confesses his sins, and he's repentant of them. Right? And he doesn't want them to think, well, just because they're not perfect in these evidences that they're not actually saved. He wants to reassure them that there is salvation when they bear these fruits at all. Right? When you're saved, you will bear these fruits, but you won't bear them perfectly. He wants to reassure them that they have genuine salvation. So what he says there to the little children, that's the whole audience, he says to them in verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you. Isn't that the word that we need to hear? Your sins are forgiven. Now John has already described the person whose sins are forgiven. In, in 1 John 1, 7, he says, But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So somebody who's forgiven is somebody who, as evidence of that, will walk in the light. He also said that they're a person who confesses their sin. That's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now remember, walking in the light, confessing your sins, those are not the things that save you or accomplish forgiveness of sins. They're evidence that you have already been saved, evidence that you've already been Forgiven. And that's really what 1 John 1, 7 says. It's the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses you from sin. Not what you do, but what he did. So when John says that his audience's sins are forgiven, he's saying, I have confidence that you really are saved. I know you. You're my little children. I see the evidence of salvation in you. You are walking in the light. You are confessing your sins, giving them that reassurance. The truth of that statement that he gives, that your sins are forgiven, and that's the basic essence of the gospel promise, that your sins are forgiven. And it's true of every, every true Christian. Every, everyone who really knows the Lord, their sins are forgiven. In other words, God doesn't hold your sin against you. In fact, he says in Hebrews 8.12, quoting from Jeremiah, he says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. It's one of the basic fundamental promises of the gospel. And as Steve Lawson said, I want to echo this to you, is that that for Christians is such old news, you have to make sure that we don't lose out or lose sight of it being the good news, okay? That our sins are forgiven. That is the essence of life for us. You, little children, have your sins forgiven. No matter your failures, your sins are forgiven. And that truth ought to provide rest for your souls. You need to rest in that truth. And, and John opens up to everybody and his audience, the Christians in his audience, to reassure them. Remember, I know you're feeling like a big sinner because of all those tests I just gave. But remember, your sins are forgiven. And he adds this to it, too. And this is awesome. Your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Notice that. That's, that's the reason. That's the basis. For God's name's sake. For Jesus' name's sake. Think about that. Why does God forgive us? Because of our obedience to him? No. Because of how much we love each other because we're just great at loving each other? No. Because we're so godly? No. See, he says he forgives us not because of us. He forgives us for his own namesake. This is, this is throughout the Bible. 1 Samuel twelve twenty two, For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Why won't he abandon his people? Because of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. There's the reason. 
or Ezekiel 36, 22 and following. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. So in other words, why is it that God will regenerate his people? He says, for my holy name, for my holy name. And John is echoing that. He's saying he's forgiven you for his name's sake, for the sake of his glory, to display his mercy, his kindness, his grace, his love, not because of you, but to display who he is. It's not that he sees something lovable, in you, it's that he is loving. Later on in, in 1 John 4.10, it says, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, be the propitiation for our sins. You see that? It's because of his namesake, for his glory, to demonstrate his love. So he's reminding his readers, John is here, that the forgiveness of your sins, it's not based upon the fruit that you bear. It's not the works that you do. Those are the evidences of being saved. He's saying the basis for your forgiveness is not your performance. It's for his name's sake, accomplished by the death of Jesus, where he paid the penalty for people's sins. This is how he opened up chapter two. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's the basis for his name's sake through what Jesus did. So it's on that basis that the forgiveness of sins is by the grace of God, that John now is going to include these three categories of, of Christians, fathers, young men, and children, in this one family of God. So he's addressed everybody, and now he's going to divide it out into three different levels of spiritual maturity. So he's reassured them. He's, given, he's said he's confident that their sins are forgiven. And now he's going to specifically address them. Remember, all these three groups are Christians. They're in that category of the little children, every, every Christian. They're all forgiven of their sins. And none of these groups is more forgiven than the next group. None is, more, none is more justified than another. They're all equally saved, equally forgiven. No Christian can be more forgiven than another. And what he does here is he actually uses terminology that shows that they really do know God in contrast to those false teachers who don't. He says, for example, that the father, both the fathers and the children in these upcoming verses know God. Well, he's already said the Gnostics don't. They don't know God because they don't bear the good fruit. He says the young men have overcome Satan by the power of Christ. But the Gnostics don't overcome Satan. They're overcome by Satan, and they're still in their sin. So the designations that he gives for fathers, young men, and children are also reaffirmations of them actually being saved. So there's a contrast between these true converts, the fathers, young men, and children, and these Gnostic false teachers. But although all of these groups are, of course, equally saved, no Christian can be more saved or forgiven than another, not all groups are equally mature. 
And this is the main topic of, of the text this evening. Not, not everyone is equally sanctified who's a Christian. Because sanctification is that process. It's a process by which we grow in our knowledge and our holiness. So you, you can be, you'll be equally justified with every other believer, but not equally sanctified. You won't all be equally mature. Right? We grow in spiritual maturity. You don't start out when you're born again as a father in spiritual maturity. You start out as a baby, as a child. So the next verses will lay out uh, what John has to say to these three groups, fathers, young men, and children. And we'll notice uh, as we get into it here that he repeats himself. That he'll repeat what he says to the fathers and young men. But what he'll really, he's really doing is he, he's elaborating. He'll, he'll say a statement and the next time he'll say it again and maybe he'll say the exact same thing or maybe he'll elaborate on it. Uh, really, people have uh, raised a lot of questions about why the repetition? Why does he repeat himself? And why does he re- repeat himself word for word sometimes or elaborate in other cases? And I think the answer is pretty simple. Why is it that people repeat themselves? For emphasis. Why is it that people repeat themselves? For emphasis, right? That's why we do that. And I think that's what he's doing here. It's, it's something to really catch your attention. And it does, because everybody's wondering, why is he doing this? Why is he repeating himself? So he lays out here these basic statements to fathers, young men, and children, and then he repeats himself and sometimes elaborates or gives them instructions or things that each group specifically uh, needs to hear. He emphasizes certain things to each group, and we'll see that as we go. All right, so let's get into the three groups. It starts off with fathers there in verse 13 and also in verse 14. He says in verse 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. In verse 14, he says, I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. Very, very similar. Okay, so in both cases, he's repeating the same main message to the fathers in the faith. So who are the fathers? The fathers are the spiritually mature. This is level three. This is the highest level of spiritual maturity in these categories. These are the Christians who have walked with the Lord for an extended period of time and have been sanctified in a great way. They're mature. These are the Manassans. From the book of Acts. Remember him? I didn't either. He's from Acts 21. And it says, Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking to us Manasin of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing, with whom we were to lodge. So the fathers are the Manasins. They're the disciples of long standing. And he says about them that they have known him who is from the beginning. That's what the fathers are designated as. They know him who is from the beginning. Now, although the him who is from the beginning could be referring to the father, it's most likely referring to Jesus. And the reason for that is that's probably hearkening back to 1 John 1, 1, the very beginning of the book, where he said, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, etc. That was about Jesus. And now he seems to be using the same phrase. These spiritually mature fathers have known Jesus. And Jesus is the one who is from the beginning. Now, of course, all Christians know Jesus, don't we? Right? We all know Jesus. Yet, John wants to lay down a special emphasis about this to the spiritually mature fathers. See, Steve Lawson gave a helpful illustration here. He says, when you're a little kid, you know, when you're a toddler, right, you don't really know much about what's going on with your, with your dad, with your parents, right? When, you, when your dad is, uh, leaves, when he leaves the house and goes to work, you don't really know what he does. You know, you know that he goes out for a while and then comes back later in the day. You don't really know much about the guy, right? You just know he leaves the house and comes back. But then when you start growing up, 
you got to start understanding what your dad does, you know, what he works at, what his skills are, uh, what his abilities are. You understand more about the man and his character. And likewise, when you're, when you're a new Christian, when you're a baby Christian, you know God, for sure. But you don't really know that much about him, really. But when you grow, you learn that God is on his throne. You learn that he's sovereign over everything. Every detail of the universe, you know, that he rules over it. You know his character now as you mature. You know who he is. You know, you know his love. You know his justice. You know that when you pass through trials, it's his loving hand that puts you through them so that you'll mature. You don't lash out at God when he puts you through hard things. You, you humbly submit to it. Because, you know, he runs the universe, right? Instead of, running, instead of lashing out at him as if you know how to run things, a mature father in the faith knows God on a deep level, an intimate level. He knows that God's eternal. He knows that he is from the beginning. He knows that God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the future. He knows what he's doing. Right? The, mature, the mature Christian rests in God. I think perhaps uh, God brought Job to the father level in the book of Job, when Job decided that it would be a good idea to question what God was doing, how he was running the universe, uh, God answered Job when Job questioned God and said this, for example, Job 38, 4 and 5, God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it? There's God Answering back to Job, he says later on, you know what, Job, have you ever in your life commanded the morning or caused the dawn to know its place? Well, Job, I, I mean, I just assume you do because you're, you're God, right, Job? You know better than me, right? Later on, Job 41 to 5, the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And here, perhaps, is where Job learned to trust God even more. He already trusted God in a great way, but here he rests and God, and he says, then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hands on my mouth. Once I've spoken and I will not answer. Even twice and I will add nothing more. He's saying, I don't know anything. God is the wise one. He's the one who has been from the beginning, not Job. When you're spiritually mature, you know that. You know him who's from the beginning. You know God in a deep way. You trust his promises. You rest in his sovereignty. You know that God knows how to make the world turn. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to order the lives of people in the world. He knows how to tell you how people are supposed to live. You say, yes, I trust the Lord. You have a, a deep relationship with him, a close uh, or a deep understanding of his words, so that you know his heart. You know who he is. Fathers, these spiritual fathers, they know God, who is eternal who's from the beginning, and they happily live under his lordship. They have a deep knowledge of scripture, a deep love for his word, for the theology of his word. They're not the newcomers to the faith. These are the, these are the old men in the faith. They're not people who know a little bit about scripture and about God. They know a lot. They've learned a lot because they've been a disciple of long standing. They've walked with the Lord a long time. They've prayed for many years. They've studied his word for many years. They've walked with him. So those are the fathers to begin with. They have known him who's from the beginning. That's level three, right? Now level two, the young men 
And I'll mention, it's not just the males, just to be clear. The fathers includes women and so does the young men and the children, men and women of spiritual maturity. This level is the young men, the adults. Um, if it was a physical age, it's like 20 to 40 is some, how some lexicons define it, right? But this is a spiritual maturity. In uh, verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And then verse 14, he says, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. <clears throat> the young men, these are the tested and the proven. They're the strong ones. When the temptation to leave the church with the false teachers came here in 1 John, they overcame that temptation. They overcame the devil. They didn't go along with that. These young men in the faith have been tested to some degree and have stood firm in the faith. They're strong in the Lord. They've taken up that full armor of God. Remember Ephesians 6 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in yourself? No, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Well, the young men, they do that. They take up the full armor of God and they fight. They don't derive strength from themselves because they know they have no strength in themselves. They are strong in the Lord. That's what John's saying too. They are strong, these young men. They're strong in the Lord. These are, these are Christians who are involved in kingdom work. They're involved in the church. They're hungry for the teaching of scripture and they want to get that teaching out. They want to get it out to the church, out to the world. Steve Lawson said this. He says, these are not people who just show up to church as if that's a big deal. He says, not. They're impacting the church and the world. They're exercising. They are, they are the strong ones. They're out there doing it. They're the shakers and the movers for Christ's kingdom. They're the soldiers. They're strong. Matthew Henry said, he says, these are the adults in Christ Jesus, those who have arrived at the strength of spirit and sound sense and can discern between good and evil. They have a level of wisdom. They're not babies anymore. They're strong. They're ready for battle. They've been trained enough by God's word, wise enough to see sin for what it is and to fight against it, to avoid it. They take Satan seriously, very seriously. They wrestle against him, not in their own strength, but by the strength of the Lord. What that means is they know how to take scripture and battle Satan with it. It's like Jesus did. They know how to pray to God for strength against his temptations. They've overcome the evil one as soldiers have in the strength of Christ. They're strong. Not, again, not by their own strength, but by the strength that, God word, that God's word abides in them. Remember Romans 6, 11, he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The young men take that seriously. They, I, I am dead to sin. I no longer have to live in it. I can overcome that through the power of Christ. He has resurrected me spiritually. I am dead to sin and alive to God. They know that they can resist Satan and that they can make progress against their sin. They can obey God. These young men, they don't play around with sin. They're fighters against it. They've learned there's no joy in it. It's the path of, the path of sin is the path for fools. The young men know that. They're going to battle Satan with the full armor of God. They're going to trust him, believe him, believe his word. 
Matthew Henry again said, It will be the glory of youthful persons to be strong in Christ and in his grace. It will be their glory and it will try their strength to overcome the devil. If they be not too hard for the devil, he will be too hard for them. Let vigorous Christians show their strength in conquering the world and the same strength must be exerted in overcoming the world as, in, as is employed in overcoming the devil. To these young men, they're in it. They're in the battle and they know what they're facing. They know that they, that they can't go out to battle in their street clothes. Right? They're strong. They have the word of God abiding in them, ready to take on Satan and the world. Henry again says, the word of God must abide in adult disciples. It's the nutriment and the supply of strength to them. It's the weapon by which they overcome the wicked one, the sword of the spirit, whereby they quench his fiery darts. And those in whom the word of God dwells are well furnished for the conquest of the world. So the young men are strong. They've overcome Satan. The word of God abides in them. They're ready. You know, Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. He said, I do not ask that you take them, the disciples. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. These young men, they don't run away from the world. They don't retreat from the world. They're ready to fight the spiritual battles that they need to fight. They need to, be, then they need to fight and win. They're ready to battle against sin within and without. They're ready to battle against Satan and his temptations. Steve Lawson said, he said, these people have got off the couch and they've entered the game. They're, they're playing big boy football now. See, you, can't, you can't build muscle if you're not active. See, these, these were children, and they become strong men because they got into the real business of kingdom work for Christ. You can't stop the young men from getting out and doing what they need to do. They live on the word of God. It abides in them. They're ready to battle. They're ready to fight. They're serious now. They're serious about their walk with Christ. That's the young men. And then we have level one here, children, new converts. Verse 13, the last phrase, I have written to you children because you know the Father. These are, these are the new converts, the baby Christians. They know the Father. It's very simple. It's very beautiful. They're adopted and they know his fatherhood. Children in the faith, these new converts, they just know the joy of knowing God as their father. That's what they know. They don't know much about him, but they know he's their father. He, they know that he loves them and that their sins are forgiven in Christ. See, the Holy Spirit, in fact, he makes a new convert to know that. Remember in scripture? Why does he make them cry out? Abba, Father, Romans 8, 15. The spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. There's a contemporary Christian song that the chorus goes like this. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. That's it. That's the basic, pure, beautiful truth that the new convert knows. He's a good father. I'm loved by him. It's who he is. It's who I am. So when you're a new Christian, that's what you know. And by way of illustration, as I mentioned, I have a one-year-old. She illustrates this well, too. Um, she's old enough now to talk a little, a little bit, right? And when I'm, I'm told, Hannah tells me that when I'm out of the house, she'll go around calling out, Daddy, Daddy. Right? I'm not there, of course. And when I come home, she races to the door and, and says it again. And she doesn't really know much about me, really. She doesn't really know, again, what I'm doing when I'm out 
But she does understand that I love her and that I enjoy her. New believers are the same way. They know the Father. They delight in him. Spurgeon said this when he was was reflecting on um, being a new convert. He said this, and this will probably resonate with many of you. It did for me. He said, and I quote, The day of small things has its beauty and its excellence. I have known some who, after years, would have liked to have gone back to their first days of being a Christian. He says, oh, well do some of us remember when we would have gone over hedge and ditch to hear a sermon. We had not much knowledge, but oh, how we longed to know. We stood in the aisles then, and we never got tired. Now, soft seats we need, and very comfortable places. And the atmosphere must neither be too hot nor too cold. We're getting dainty now, perhaps. But in those first young days of spiritual life, what appetites we have for divine truth and what zeal, what sacred fire was in our hearts. True, some of it was wildfire and perhaps the energy of the flesh mingled with the power of the spirit. But for all that, God remembers the love of our espousals, that is of our adopting and supporting uh, the Christian faith. And we remember it too, end quote. We didn't know much, but we wanted to know God. We knew him and wanted to know more, wanted to get close to him. Children in the faith, they know their father. They delight in him. They know that they're forgiven by him and loved by him. So children in the faith, these are people who have been recently converted, perhaps in the last year, maybe two. Now, along with that, there's a problem that can arise. When one is a child for too long. See, being a baby is good. It's normal. It's how it works. You don't start out as a father. You don't start as a young man. You start as a baby. That's how God designed it. So when we see a new convert and like that, like Spurgeon described, they know little, but they're, they're zealous for the Lord. Well, that should bring joy to our hearts. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to see when a new convert is, is learning and hungry for the word. When, in other words, when babies act like babies, it's, a, it's cute, right? It makes us smile. But when you're 25 years old and acting like a baby, it's not cute anymore, right? See, children, Christians start out as children, but they shouldn't stay children forever. They need to move on up to those other stages of maturity. Remember in the beginning, I brought up the author of Hebrews rebuke here. I want to walk through that a little bit. If you want to turn there, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11. Um, this is important. The author of Hebrews here, God, God expects us here to advance beyond the baby, baby stages. And that's what he's correcting in the audience here in Hebrews 5.11. And he's, he's saying, I have a lot to tell you about Jesus as the high priest, but I need to stop for a minute because you got, I'll have a problem. So look at verse 11, Hebrews 5.11. He says, concerning him, Jesus, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. I'll stop there for a second. Notice the reason. The reason it's hard to explain to them is because they're not willing to listen. They've become dull of hearing. They've, they've turned the switch off, right? They won't listen anymore. They're dull. That, it's their fault. The reason it's hard to get them to understand it is because they're not being teachable. They're not paying attention. They don't want to learn. They don't want to grow. So he says in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. 
right? Isn't that right? Who, who lives on milk? Babies. He's saying you all should already be beyond that and onto the meat, onto the solid food of the word. Verse 14, for, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Look at chapter six, verse one. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He's not gonna let them be babies anymore. He's saying, y'all should already be teachers by now, but you're, you're repeating kindergarten. You're 30 years old and you're still in kindergarten. There's a problem there, isn't there? You should have learned your ABCs and then learned to write words and then learned to write sentences and then learned to write paragraphs and then learned to write uh, papers. But instead, they just repeat their ABCs and they're 25, 26, 30, 50 years old. They're babies still. By this time, they ought to be teachers. We don't want to be the 25-year-old who's still drinking milk from a bottle who wears onesies and who needs somebody to carry him wherever he goes, right? That's, that's messed up. That's, that's pathetic. You don't want to be that, that Christian who's been in the faith for years and years and years and yet still is in the baby phase. We just got to grow up at some point, spiritually speaking. So over time, as you grow in the faith, you got to get involved. The next stage is the young man stage. You got to get involved. You got to get to that stage of strength. Exercise those spiritual muscles, you got to get up to there. And the only way you're going to do that is if you get on, like Hebrew says, on that strong meat, that solid food of the word. You can't stay on milk forever. He says, you got those foundations? Awesome. Now build on it. Build on those basic truths. Babies drink milk because that's all they can handle when they're babies. But once you start taking in solid food, that shows, hey, you're maturing. You're maturing. That meteor stuff, you can handle it. Right? So we got to move on from just the milk. we got to get into the meat. Solid, solid meat, solid food of the word. That shows we're growing up as we ought to. So we have these three groups. Let's look at them, real, summarize them again real quickly. All three groups, their sins are forgiven. All right, that's verse 12. And then he says, you start out as a child. Right? You know the father. You, you enjoy your adoption as his son, his son or daughter. But then eventually you grow up to level two. That's the young man stage. Young men are strong. They've digested a lot of the meat of the word. They're, they've built spiritual muscle to fight against sin in their own lives. And they've, they've, they're into advancing the kingdom of God through his word. The word of God abides in them and they have to go out there and, and do work for him. Of course, the young men still know the father when they were, as they did when they were children, but they've built on that. They've matured from that. And then thirdly, the fathers, right? Those are the ones who had once been children and who had once been young men. And now they've matured to the level of spiritual wisdom so that they know God on a really deep, intimate level. They've been those young men. They fought those spiritual battles. They've had that spiritual strength and it hasn't left them. They've built on it. Now they're, they're seasoned veterans in the faith. They have that spiritual old man strength. Fathers, they're wise, they're strong. They live by God's word. They rest quietly in his sovereignty and his promises. They're skilled in God's word. They're skilled in the Christian life because they're mature. So as we conclude, what about you? Right? Where, where are you in your spiritual maturity? And what stage? 
As we've gone through 1 John, we've seen some tests before to see whether or not we're saved at all. Right? And, and what he's giving us here is that um, you, know, you have to examine yourself with those tests. But he says, okay, if, you, if you're repentant of those sins and, and you know that uh, you are bearing that fruit, however weak it may seem at times, he says, be assured your sins are forgiven you. But he wants them now to ask, okay, where am I, though, in my walk with the Lord? I know my sins are forgiven. That's a foundational, absolute foundational truth. You have to know that. You have to start there. But where am I in my spiritual maturity? Another question is, where should I be by this time? Now, I'm sure none of us are satisfied with where we are, and I I doubt that we ought to be, right? There's always room for, for growth and sanctification. I guess the real question is, though, are we growing? Are we growing? The author of Hebrews was not happy with the audience because they weren't. They'd become dull of hearing. They weren't, they weren't taking on the meat of the word. Now, there's many things to say here about how we can grow, but I just want to give a couple of practical things quickly as we close. One is just that. We have to take in more of the word. That's what Hebrews says. You can't just stick to the ABCs. We've got to move, move beyond that, build upon that, take in the meat. And not just being a hearer of it either the one who actually takes it in with the purpose of doing it, being changed by it. If you read the Bible, you should ask, you know, what, what is this saying that I need to change about my attitudes? How does it correct my attitudes and my beliefs and my actions? We have, we, have to, we have to take in the word with the intention to grow from it. We, we won't get stronger unless we eat, in other words. You have to get into the Word. You've got to study it so you can know God better. Secondly, you've got to get involved in the church and serving the Lord. You've got to exercise your spiritual muscles or you're going to be weak, right? You've got to exercise your spiritual muscles by exercising your spiritual gifts in the church and using them out in the world. If you're a, if you're a young man or father stage, you can disciple somebody who's in a younger spiritual maturity stage, right? Or if you're a child, Right? You can be discipled by an older person. Is that, that going to help you grow? You bet. Be discipled by an older person in the faith. You know, pray together. Share concerns. Ask for advice. Learn the, share the gospel. And get involved in the life of the church. Not just one who shows up, but one who's really involved. We're looking to grow here. We're looking to grow, not just plateau. Okay? So where are we? Are we growing? We should always be striving to grow more. So in conclusion, as we think about moving forward in the book of 1 John, you might have noticed that he doesn't repeat himself with regard to children. Right? He says it once in verse 13, and then young men, and, or fathers, young men, and then... Well, that's because I believe that this section really continues on. That what he says in verse 15 to 17 is still addressing the young men, and then you'll notice in verse 18, he addresses the children. It's that same Greek word used twice, paideia, verse 18, children. It's the last hour. Something specifically that he wants to emphasize to those young Christians. So we'll see that as we continue on. But next time we're together, we'll look at 15 to 17, and we'll see what John has to say about overcoming sin and the true Christian's attitude uh, towards sin. So let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you first and foremost, for sending Christ so that our sins are forgiven for your namesake. We thank you for that fundamental uh, truth that we can rest in, knowing 
that although we fail so much, that our sins are still forgiven. You don't remember them against us anymore because of what Jesus has done. And we know, for those of us who truly do know the Lord, we know that you have and are continuing to bear fruit in us. As, as weak as it can seem at times, we can see the fruits and we thank you for bearing that in us. For your glory, to help us in our assurance that we may know we have eternal life. We, we thank you for your wisdom and how you uh, accomplish all of these things. And Lord, we pray for each of us, every one of us who really know you, that you would help us to, to grow. Whether we're a new convert, uh, an adult, or uh, an old man in the faith, that you will help us to grow, to grow more and more, to be like Jesus. You would grow in wisdom and in love, to know you better, to be holier. Pray that you'll give us a, a, a renewed zeal to take in your words so that we can get stronger. So Lord, we thank you for your loving guidance and care as you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen.